significant events in Jesus' life happened to him before he even started his ministry, before the miracles, before the fame, before being proclaimed as the Messiah. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the desert to face the worst the devil could throw at him. He not only defeated the devil's attacks, but the Bible says Jesus left that place and he began to go to work and he turned the countryside upside down. What was the secret of Jesus' success in the wilderness? Well, the Bible says that for 40 days and nights, he fasted and prayed. Jesus modeled for us that the power we seek to overcome our struggles, to walk in freedom, has nothing to do with how capable we are, how good we are, or how talented we are. The strength to fight is not found in something we need to gain. It's found in something we need to release. Alrighty, church. How are we doing this morning? Man, you feel the presence of God? Woo! I just want to give a shout out to my beautiful wife who did an awesome job last week for Mother's Day, was so encouraged and inspired. I even listened to it again on the podcast and was equally blessed. So I pray that 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 was a blessing for you as well. Well, today we're starting a new series called The 40-Day Fast. And uh, so I'm really excited about this. God has had this on my heart for uh, some time now. I believe the Spirit of God is continuing to lead us as a church into pressing into His presence, even deeper into the presence of God, to experience God on a level that you've not experienced before. And I don't know if you know this, but our God is a big God, right? If he could speak the galaxies into existence, then we have only scratched the surface on what we could know and experience of our God uh, from the short amount of time we've lived here on the earth. And I believe God, through the Holy Spirit, is, is leading us into a deeper encounter with his presence, to experience his presence, but also strengthen and empower us, just as that song said, to strengthen and empower us for the calling he has placed on us as the church of Jesus Christ. There is a mission that we have been assigned in this world. And God wants to not only uh, see us fulfill that mission, but he has given us a power source to enable us to complete that mission. And we're going to take a look at uh, a time in the Lord's life over this series to see how we can access that power in our lives. The word fast or fasting may be foreign to you. It might not be something that you're real familiar with, or maybe you've, you've heard that term tossed around in maybe uh, some religious circles. But the word fast or fasting by definition simply means to abstain from some kinds of food or drink, especially as a religious observance. So it's to withhold nutrition from yourself for a time, uh, in, usually in uh, religious observance, but has now become part of a fad in certain diet crazes. You'll hear the term intermittent fasting. It has nothing to do with faith. just has to do with losing weight. So there, this is kind of becoming a thing in our culture. But fasting has been a practice for thousands of years and is such a practice that Jesus even assumed it would be normal for believers to do. And it's not something that we actually talk about a lot in the church. When we gather, we're not usually talking about how many calories did you abstain from this week? No, we don't, we don't talk about that. We talk about the death and resurrection of Christ and what it means to be a Christian and how to walk in faith. But fasting is an element, is something that, that Jesus modeled for us and has even instructed us in and assumed that be something that we would do. If you look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, Here's what Jesus says. He says, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Two things in this passage. Jesus said, when you fast, 
He is assuming you're going to do it. When you do this. He didn't say if you do it. He said when you do it. So it's something that Jesus himself assumed would be happening. And he said when you do this, don't do it to be seen by others like the hypocrites who want to be seen as being super spiritual, super Christian. You know, they, they, they put on their, their uh, Jesus t-shirt and, and proclaim how great they are. He, he doesn't want you to fast that way. But when you do it, do it in a way that honors God, that is about your relationship and your connection with God. And there, there are times in a church's life, we can see this through Scripture, that there are, are times when the body of Christ will be called to observe what's called a solemn fast. This is when we all fast together. When we're in a solemn fast, we can talk about the fasting. We can say, hey, you know, here's what I'm fasting from. Here's what I'm fasting from. Not to boast, but to encourage each other to be faithful as we seek God together on a certain matter. But then there are individual or personal fasts. And when you fast personally, it should not be done to, again, show your spirituality, but to be done in secret before your heavenly Father as a way to grow close to Him and grow in intimacy and dependence on Him. Often people will fast if there is a a major need or circumstance in their lives, like a health issue or a relationship issue, and it doesn't seem like anything would help without an act of God. This is when many people would fast. Um, The word fast in this series, if you notice in the the logo, it's F.A.S.T. We're using this as an acronym as we look at a time Jesus fasted to really kind of bring to light what, what I believe is a truth for the body of Christ. And the reason we're going to be unpacking the, the fasting and what Christ went through in this series. The word fast in this acronym, and it's also the subtitle of this series, it represents us fighting amid Satan's turf. Fighting amid Satan's turf. Somebody say that. Fighting amid Satan's turf. We have to recognize that we are in a spiritual battle. When you think of fasting, we need to keep this in mind, that we are constantly at war with a spiritual enemy that desires nothing but to take us down. That is what he desires. Jesus said he has come to steal, kill, and destroy. We're constantly at war between two influences in the world, heaven and the enemy kingdom. The world... We use this word, the world, and you can see that in Scripture, the use of the word, the world. It's not just talking about the earth and the plants and the trees and the reality that we exist in. But when the Bible uses the term world, it also is referencing a system of influence governed by the enemy. We could call this the culture. We could call this uh, the, the, the cultures in the world, the, the people and places that have influence in our nation, over what we think, over what we choose to do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says this, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. One of the things Satan does in the world is he exerts control over the world and he creates blindness so people cannot or are unable to come to the truth of who Jesus is and be set free, to be forgiven of their sins, to be restored to a right relationship with God. But Paul calls him the God of this world. And how he became the God of this world, we'll unpack in this series later. But uh, as we look at the 40-day fast, But two years ago, we went through a series, it's online on our website, uh, about spiritual warfare called Fight for Your Life. And in that series, we unpacked the nature of this spiritual war, what Satan is doing, the spiritual laws he's leveraging against us, where the source of many of our struggles come from, and how to overcome those struggles. And really, it's centered around the verse in Ephesians 6 that Paul talks about this spiritual war, that as believers in Christ, our struggles are not rooted in the earth or in people. They're rooted against the enemy kingdom. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers in the heavenly realms. We are fighting a war against the enemy, and he is not stopping. He doesn't relent. He does not give up. So in this series, we're not going to dive into the ins and outs of spiritual warfare, 
but we need to recognize that as the foundation and really the reality of us as Christians. We need to recognize and remember we are constantly at war. Just like Jesus, when he went into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan is also going to try to leverage himself, leverage temptations, enticements, and lies in our lives to bring about his plans to steal, kill, and destroy. And he leverages these things. He brings about his plans in our lives by leveraging our weaknesses against us because of the sin nature, because of this fallen nature we wrestle with. We have certain weaknesses and proclivities that give way to sinning against God rather than honoring God with our lives. Again, the world in Scripture is not just our physical reality, but it's a demonic system that the enemy is using to entice us. In 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 16, John writes this. He says, Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. That is a strong statement. If you think about what John is saying, he's saying, If you love the world... You do not have the love of God in you. Well, we better figure out if we are loving the world or if we're loving God. That's kind of a big deal, right? Right here, John is telling us if we love the world. This word love here, there, there are many words for love in the Greek language where the New Testament was written in. This word love is the word agape. It's, it's usually used to represent God's kind of love. But by definition, it's more than fondness. It means sacrificial contending or striving for diligently this word agape so if you think of God's love he was striving contending for relationship with us which is why he sent Jesus into the world to die on the cross for our sins he was striving and contending for our us to be reconciled back to him so John in this passage he's saying if we are striving for or contending for the world literally if we're obsessed with the world, the things of this world, we cannot love God. If we're obsessed with the nature of this world, the culture and the things in it, we cannot love God. So what are the things of the world? What are the things that the enemy in this demonic system, what is it that they're offering us? He continues in verse 16. He says, The world offers us only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, Pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. These are our spiritual sensitive points. Due to our sin nature and the fallenness of man, we are easily led astray by physical pleasure. The things that make our bodies, our senses, even our emotions feel good. Why do you think people have, like myself, a sugar addiction? It's because I like how sugar makes me feel. Why are people addicted to uh, visual stimulus, pornography, physical stimulus, sex, and, and massages or anything else that makes our bodies feel good? Why, why are we obsessed with puppies and kittens? It does something in us, right? It makes us feel good. When you become obsessive about these things, when you strive or contend for to the point that it becomes an idol and becomes a point of worship in your life where you're giving yourself over to it, this is what the enemy uses to bring about his plans in your life. Things that fuel our lust, what we see. You know, we see a nice car and we can't think about anything else, but how can I get that nice car? We see uh, clothes and we have to do everything we can. We'll go into debt in order to buy a new wardrobe. We have this lust of the eyes that we just have to have everything that we see. Or even pride in our achievements where we feel entitled, we feel better than others, and we begin to judge others because we value ourselves and our, and our worth far above others because we've achieved and we've accomplished and we've accrued more than other people. These are the, the philosophies. These are the nature, the enticements, and the, the, the ways of thinking and pursuits the enemy puts before us to bring us to our destruction. He is sly. And he can get us caught up in not just entertaining these things, but agapeing these things. Giving ourselves over to the pursuit of these things without even realizing it. We can be engaged in activities that are harming our relationship with God, our effectiveness in the kingdom of God, and we can be totally unaware of it. And this is where fasting really comes in. 
Now, I don't know about you and where you are on the new, like, diet crazes. I don't, I don't know if you're jumping on the bandwagon in any of the new diet crazes. Maybe uh, you're on the keto kick. Any keto people in here? Yeah, a couple. What about the clean eating? Any clean eating, like vegan or, or paleo people? Any in here? No? Well, the, you know, maybe you're happier than I am. I don't know. But, uh, but there are all these different diets and crazes that are out there. And uh, right now, my wife and I are involved in this online healthy eating community, and and, uh, we're really trying to eat clean foods and not have any processed foods, trying to stay away from sugar, and and it's actually uh, having an impact, and we're trying to maintain proper portions so we don't overeat. That's like my biggest problem. I eat so fast. I eat like enough for two people and don't even realize it. But uh, it's been working, and we've been seeing and noticing a difference. But one of the differences... Differences that we're noticing by staying away from sugar is we're now beginning to notice how sugary things are beginning to taste a little differently. Things we used to enjoy and easily pound way too much of or drink too fast, we're now noticing by staying away from sugar, they're tasting differently. This happened uh, uh, several years ago. I, I, on my own, I just decided I was not going to drink pop for a year. I would just drink water, juice, or, or coffee, or whatever. And I didn't drink soda for a year. And then when I went back to drinking it, it tasted disgusting. It was so sweet and syrupy. I don't know. If, is that a word? Syrupy? Syrupy? If it, if it isn't, it is now. I claim it in Jesus' name. You're free to use it. Give me credit. All right. Syrupy or, or elf. I think I may have heard that from the movie Elf. But uh, it, it, it just tasted like oversweet. And it was disgusting to the taste. It didn't change. It was the same. It, I mean, the recipe didn't change, to, for, to my knowledge, but something in me changed. And then we've been eating these natural sugar replacements, and this is beginning to change. And uh, now what I've discovered this week is I was doing some research about how, why that is. Did you know that your tongue is not the only place where you have taste buds? You have taste buds in your stomach. Did you know that? That's the craziest thing, that, that you, not only do you have taste buds in your stomach, but in your intestines, you have gut bugs, like bacteria, that also have taste buds. They, they like thrive on different types of food. So if you eat more sugary things, you're actually feeding that type of bacteria, and it grows and becomes more dominant in your stomach, which is why you start to have cravings whenever you're not feeding your gut bugs the type of food that you want. So when you're having a craving in your mind, you might like, man, I really need some chocolate. That might not be you. That might be the bugs in your gut telling you they're hungry. How gross is that? But we're supposed to have them to live. I don't know. I mean, I'm going to take that one up with God. But, but it's crazy that, that this is what happens. So as you begin to cut out sugars in your diet, that bad bacteria and the taste buds in your body begin to realign with itself. And if you didn't know this, there's sugar in everything. Like literally everything. You, you look on a label. There's high fructose corn syrup, corn syrup. There's sucralose. There's sugar, added sugars. We put sugar in absolute everything. We wonder why Americans have weight problems. I mean, it's ridiculous. But there's sugar in everything. We are eating so much sugar that our bodies are becoming desensitized to the amount of sugar that we're taking in. So when you drink a pop, it doesn't taste overly sweet. Why? Because you've gotten your body and your taste buds accustomed to enjoying that level of sweetness. And now, you know, as I begin to change or realign, uh, I don't even need... To, to, to really have a lot of sweets anymore. Like a handful of blueberries is, is doing good for me now, which is, is amazing. And I just think, you know, as I look over my life and all the stuff that I used to eat and how many times at a, like a church buffet, I would secretly walk by the dessert table about 15 times to grab, you know, as many no-bake cookies off the thing as I could. You, you know, I'm just thinking about what was I doing to my body? You know, what, what was I doing to the temple of the Spirit just like, eating all this stuff, not even really recognizing what I was doing to myself. Now I don't even want as much as I used to. My body's becoming accustomed to better eating choices. When I think of this concept, I think of how just by eating a consistent diet of the wrong foods desensitizes your body and allows you to uh, eat more and more of these things that after your body comes realigned, you're like, man, why would I do that? Why would I eat that? 
Why would I eat the whole box of donuts when only one or even half of one is enough? I think of this concept, and I think about how the enemy gets us caught up in spiritual snares, how we end up in spiritual strongholds. And just like what John is telling us, you see, if we don't examine our foods and know what's in them, we will end up consuming food that's unhealthy, desensitizing ourselves. But the same is true in your life. You see, what you feed your body will determine what you hunger for. The more you feed those cravings, the more you will crave, the more and more it may, may be sugar, it will take to satisfy that craving. And the same is true for our spiritual lives. If we feed off this world without examining the label, to know whether or not what we're doing is healthy for us, for our spiritual well-being, whether or not it's good for us, the result is the devil will cause us to be desensitized to what we're doing, getting us to engage in more and more of this destructive and dysfunctional activity. And the result is he'll be able to seduce us with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life and We won't be able to stop him because we'll be so desensitized to the reality of the world that we won't even know it's happening right underneath our nose. That we become so normalized. Do you ever notice that you don't recognize how much swearing is in a movie until you watch it with a child or your mom? Does that ever happen? Like, oh man, this is this is a great movie. And your mom's sitting next to you and you're like, beep, beep, beep. And you're like, um, maybe it's not so great. You know, why does that happen? Because we constantly feed ourselves garbage, we don't even recognize it until something jogs us out of that habit or that routine. This is how the enemy gets into our lives and gets us desensitized. See, the body of Christ for far too long has allowed the enemy to become to work in our lives undetected. We become desensitized to his schemes in the world. If we want our eyes to be open to the truth, not just of what God's word says and what it means, but the truth of the reality of our lives, if we want more of God in our lives and less of the enemy's plans to steal, kill, and destroy, then it's time that we take a step back from the world and we reorient our diet. It's time we change what we crave. It's time we change what we consume. We need to come into agreement with the will of God so we can see the world and everything in it for what it is. And so we begin to hunger after heavenly things and not worldly things. That we become driven by the love of God and not the lust of the world. It's time we join the Lord in a 40-day fast and to see how he fought amidst Satan's turf. And not only fought and was successful in winning the battle against the enemy, but before we start this venture and really picking apart you know, the fast and the different ways Jesus battled and won victory over the enemy, I really want to focus on what led up to Jesus going into the desert in the first place. Because if you want to have a successful fast, you want to successfully detach yourself from the world to be open to the truth, to see the reality of your life and begin to pursue God in an even deeper and greater way. If you want to have a successful fast and come out the winner in the battle and not fall to the same tricks of the enemy again, there's something very important we need to take note of in this story. So this message is kind of going to be a setup for what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. But before Jesus ever goes into the wilderness to begin his 40-day fast, before he even starts off in ministry, something happens before this event in his life. At this time, Jesus was really unknown. There's a guy named John the Baptist. He was the cousin of Jesus who was ministering. He was a prophet. He was baptizing in the Jordan River, and he was baptizing through a message of repentance. He was telling people that the sacrificial system the Jews had grown up with was not the way to God. Really, a repentant heart, turning of your sins, and trusting in the Lord through placing their faith in the coming Messiah, that would be the way to have a relationship with God. And so he was baptizing people in the Jordan River, this baptism of repentance. And many people were turning to the Lord. One day, Jesus goes out to meet John. And John is teaching. He's, he's telling people about the one who would to come in Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 through 17. Here's what John the Baptist, or baptizer, says. He says, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. 
But someone is coming soon who's greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not worthy even to be a slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he'll clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff in never-ending fire. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. After Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. This is so, there's so many things here. We don't have time to unpack it all today. But something happens here in this passage that is so significant that I believe it tells us why many of us seemingly have been cursed to fail in battle and spiritual struggle time and time again. Why we spend so much strength in emotional struggle, white knuckling our way through trying to win victories in our lives and overpower the struggles that we have only to fall back in failure again. That there's something that is happening here that gives us a picture of how we can find the power of God to win in our struggles. The first thing I see here is John speaks of the baptism of Christ, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and with fire. That the Holy Spirit comes upon you and anoints you with power. In verse 11 and in verse 13, when Jesus walks up to John, again, Jesus is relatively unknown. There have been no miracles at this time. No one even really knows who he is. John says to Jesus in verse 13, I'm not worthy to baptize you, but you should baptize me. See, John is baptizing people with the baptism of repentance, turning to God through faith. But when he says Jesus, he says, you are the one that should baptize me. Why is that important? It's because John recognized that Jesus' baptism was not the same as his baptism. It wasn't the baptism of repentance in water. It was the baptism with the Holy Spirit and with power. John, according to Jesus himself, was the greatest prophet to ever live. Jesus said there's been no one else greater than John. And yet John knew there was something missing in his life. It was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He needed Jesus to pour out the Spirit upon him, to fill him with power and the presence of God. John did in everything that he did, in the way his life was affected, in all the amazing feats that he had, the respect and rapport that he had, the, the, the stature he had with the kings and the able to speak into the lives of kings. He knew that even with all of that glory, there was another level that he needed to go. And it was in the promises of God. The coming of Messiah would usher in that promise. And here he is standing face to face with the one he knew was the Messiah, the Son of God. But Jesus reveals to him that it, the time is not yet for Jesus to pour out his spirit because he had to accomplish everything that God had set before him. And we know in the story, Jesus had to, for the next three years, developed his disciples, began to uh, announce the kingdom of God, it made it to the cross and his resurrection. And then the fulfillment of this promise of pouring out the spirit began in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when the spirit fell down with tongues of flames of fire in the disciples were filled with the power and presence of God. But this moment here was not for John's baptism. It was ordained for Jesus' baptism. For Jesus to be baptized with the baptism of John, the baptism of repentance, and the baptism of water that John was providing. And even though, as we look at Scripture and how important the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, it's interesting that Jesus says, it's not time for that yet. I have to do something else. I have to do something. I need you to baptize me. And John's kind of like arguing with him about it, but finally he relents. But the question I was thinking about is why would Jesus, who is the sinless son of God, I mean, think about this. Why would Jesus, who never sinned, need to be baptized with the baptism of water or the baptism of repentance? showing that he was turning away from sin and trusting in God with his life. Why do you think that is? And I was just thinking, I was like, I mean, I just was having a hard time processing that. But in Matthew 3, 15, Jesus said, it should be done for we must carry out all that God requires. 
Jesus did not say, even though he was sinless, he never sinned. He did not say, you must carry out all that God requires. He said, we must carry out all that God requires. He was lumping himself into the same category. So what was it in this moment that Jesus needed to do? Why did Jesus need to be baptized? And if you think about it, other than the miraculous birth, we know about the 12 wise men and the, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The only other story about Jesus' childhood was when he was 12 years old and his parents lost him at the, at, at the festival. And they had to go back and find him and found him in the temple. That's the only other thing we know about the birth of Christ. So if you think about what's happening here and what was leading up to this moment, all we have if, is information about Jesus is we have to assume that Jesus lived a pretty normal Jewish life until this point. He, he lived, he probably worked the trade of his father as a carpenter. We know he was well-versed in the scriptures. It's possible he went to a rabbinical school and was trained in theology. Uh, that's possible. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. There are other historical documents aren't out there to confirm it. So we really don't know much about what Jesus did. We do know that he was tempted and faced all the same weaknesses we did. In Hebrews 4.15, says, Our high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testings we did. He went through a normal human life. So why did he need to be baptized? Well, when I'm looking at this, I'm thinking Jesus didn't skip over any of the hard parts. If he went through a normal life, he didn't skip over any of the difficult parts of being a human. I'm thinking, like, how awesome would it be to watch Jesus go through puberty? I mean, if you think about it, Jesus, he didn't skip anything, right? He had to go through it. Here's God going through puberty. And I can imagine him walking down the street and seeing Mary Magdalene, and everyone's looking and gawking, and, you know, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. And, and he's closing his eyes. He's like, oh, God, let this cup pass from me. You know, can we have a conversation about hormones? We really need to think, rethink this hormone thing. You know, maybe, I don't know. But, but I could just imagine, he went through all the same stuff. Like God, maybe pimples and acne were not, you know, in, in, in the plan. We maybe like we need to rethink this. But he went through all the same stuff. And until his 30th year, about 30 years of age, he had to have lived a normal life, worked a normal job as was the custom. So here he is facing John. And in this moment, Jesus has to make a decision. And here's the decision. The decision is this. Do I keep living a normal, mundane life? Or do I in this moment give myself over completely and holy to the will of God. Do I keep living a normal life, work my job, hang with my friends, watch my shows on TV, or do I give myself over wholly and completely to the will of God? You see, Jesus knew that there was a mission for him. There was things that God had planned for him to do, same as each and every one of us. If you call on the name of Jesus, God knows the plans that he had for you. Ephesians 2.10 says you are God's masterpiece created anew in Christ Jesus so you could do the good things he planned for you before the foundation of the world. You have a purpose and a call. Jesus knew it. And here he is facing John, and he had to make a choice. Do I submit myself wholly and completely to God, or do I keep living this normal Jewish life. And Jesus, in a moment, makes a decision. Today is the day. I'm surrendering it all. I live this life no more. From this point forward, I'm going to live by considering God in everything I do. In everything I do, I'm going to repent of normality, and I'm going to pursue his presence and his power. So Jesus decided to give himself completely over to God. He's saying, God, I'm yours fully and completely. From this point on, you get to decide my life. Jesus in Matthew 10, 39 even says, if you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. He's 
portraying the very things in this moment that he has called us to do, to give ourselves completely over to the will and care of God. You see, Satan tempts us with these different areas, with clinging to and feeding our lives with worldly pleasures, being obsessed with worldly things, to be uh, given over to temporary things that try to satisfy us but don't. But Jesus leads to the abundant life. Satan tempts us with accruing and accumulating. Jesus empowers and sets us free with us losing ourselves in him. He fulfills us as we hunger and thirst for him by giving ourselves over completely to him. The more we hunger for God, the more he satisfies our souls. God requires us to give our lives completely to him because only then can he give himself completely to us. Jesus makes this decision to give himself completely to God to do what God requires. Why? In John 14, 23, Jesus said, All who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. And in this moment, Jesus decided, I'm going to do everything that God has said so that my love will be sure, and he will come and make his home in me. And by doing what God requires, by demonstrating his love for the Lord, in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, the Spirit of God comes down upon Jesus after his water baptism. It settles on him, and Jesus is anointed with the power and presence of God. In verse 16, it says, After his baptism, Jesus came up out of the water. The heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. Jesus was not only baptized in the water, but just after he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And why this is significant, why we have to start here before we look at the 40-day fast, because I want you to see what happens in the next verse. This is the end of chapter 3. Right in the beginning of chapter 4 is where their story begins. And something happens in the next verse as we begin looking at his 40-day fast. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Jesus was led by who? The Holy Spirit. And he was led where? Into the wilderness. For what? To be tempted there by the devil. When the Spirit of God anoints and baptizes Jesus, he goes from being a normal, mundane, run-of-the-mill Jew to being a force of God in the battle against the enemy. He goes from being just, just a simple, faithful, religious person to being an anointed messenger of God. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when the Spirit comes upon you, you'll be empowered to be his witnesses. God wants us to go not just from a religious adherent or a faithful attender of church services. He wants to so fill us with his presence and power that we're a threat to the enemy. He wants you to receive the Spirit so that not only do you have the anointing, but you have the power to fight spiritual battles. And the moment he's filled, he enters the battle. The Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit leads Jesus into a fight. Does this mean God tempted Jesus? No, God tempts no one. What it means is that God led him to the place where he knew the devil would show up and try to begin attacking him by temptation. Jesus is in this uncomfortable place. He's taking hits from the enemy. And we'll see those encounters as we go through this series. But this is the principle. When you're anointed and empowered with the Holy Spirit, your world begins to change because now you become a target of the enemy. You become a target because God is working in you to take the ground back the enemy has occupied for the centuries or millennia since we've fallen and sin has entered into the world. Jesus is led to this uncomfortable place, and he is attacked by Satan. Now think about this. Have you ever just been, like out of nowhere, all of a sudden just hit with like a battle, battle or spat of depression or anxiety? And, and it's like it's out of nowhere. Nothing's really going on. Maybe you're stressed and you don't know it, but you're all of a sudden you're just taken over. Or maybe in your relationship, something just is sitting in your relationship, and you and your significant other just can't get along. It's like all you can do is fight. You're, you're trying to make up, but you're just fighting in the process. 
And no matter how hard you, you try to say, and how many times you say, I'm sorry, it's like your I'm sorry is, is like get out of my life to them. I don't know. It's just there's like a confusion and there's, there's something happening. And it just makes life absolutely miserable for that season, right? That's what happens when one little devil or one little demon gets on your back. When, when one little uh, Satan's you know, minions is running around messing up in your life, Think about Jesus going into the wilderness where no one can hear him scream. There's no one crying or able to seek for help. And the prince of darkness, the God of this world, Satan himself, has him in his undivided attention for 40 days. Think about the magnitude and the weight of what that spiritual attack would feel like. You can't comprehend it. You can't comprehend the full onslaught of the enemy kingdom coming at Jesus in a moment. We, we wonder why the, Isaiah calls Jesus the man of sorrows acquainted with the deepest grief. He experienced the full weight of Satan's power. Everything Satan could throw at him, he endured for 40 days and 40 nights. And again, before this point, there were no miracles. There was nothing to point to Jesus as the Messiah. But after Jesus conquers this encounter in the desert, he begins to go to work. He starts his ministry, and miracle after miracle after miracle begins to unleash. He begins to take back ground from the enemy, raise people from the dead, heal sickness, open blind eyes. The lame begin to leap. Something happened during this time in the wilderness that enabled Jesus to overcome the enemy, come out alive, not just survive it, but come out victorious and be filled with even more power. And I believe the root and the key is found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. It says, 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. Very hungry. The reason why Jesus was successful is because of really three things. One, he made a decision to turn himself over completely to the will and care of God. Two, he was baptized with the Holy Spirit and filled with power. And number three, what we see in this verse, he continued to empty himself of natural strength and natural dependencies so he could be filled up with spiritual strength in the presence and power of God. You see, when we enter attack, when we enter those times of depression, our inclination is run to the medicine cabinet, run to the, the, the fridge, run to all the things in this world we can try to find to help medicate our problem and get us to not think about our problem for a moment. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus said, I'm not running to the things of this world. I'm running to the only one that has the power and the authority to make a difference in my situation. I'm going to access the anointing that's upon my life. You see, it's not about anything more than dependence. If we want to win the struggles in our lives, we want to overcome the battle that the enemy brings to us. If we want to prevail in every circumstance, it's about who you are depending on. If it's in yourself or in the world or the things of this world, you are going to crumble. But if it's God and the power of the Spirit, you will prevail. You'll be left standing. And you'll be filled with more power to make even greater change and greater differences in the world. See, the more he battled Satan, the more he made room for God in his life. Paul said in Galatians 5.16, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Let the Spirit guide your life. That term also means to be occupied in the Spirit. How can we be occupied in the Spirit if we're filled with everything else. How can we be occupied in the spirit if we're spending so much time eating at the table of the world? The reason why we're powerless to win the fight against the enemy is not just because we've become desensitized and have feasted on the things of this world for satisfaction, but the result of that is that we have fat flesh and an anemic spirit. We have fat flesh and anemic spirit. Our bodies, our, our physical uh, bodies, our sinful nature has more authority and more influence in our lives than the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Our physical life is obese, but our spiritual life is dying because we've not turned ourselves over completely to the will of God. We've not emptied ourselves so we can be strong in the Lord and mighty in His power. We may be strong in the natural, but that strength is not enough to sustain us. You might be able to fight off urges for a time, but in time, your natural strength will wear out. 
And what Jesus models for us is that without his power, there is no strength to fight. And the power we seek, the power is not in trying harder, becoming something more, or becoming more spiritual and doing more religious things. The power we seek is found in surrendering ourselves completely over to God and seeking his presence and power in our lives. You see, some of us here today, we've trusted in Jesus for salvation, but you're still clinging to your life. You want heaven and eternity, but you want comfort and luxury here on the earth. Your plans, your dreams, your security and your comfort is more important to you than what God wills and wants to do in and through your life. The picture of what could be is standing in the way of what God will do and what God wants to bring into your life. The power God wants to give you to be his witness and overcome your struggles will not come until you first surrender your life to the Lord. And once you surrender your life to the Lord, when you say in your life, God, what you want for me is far more important than what I want for myself. I remember a time in my life, it was at one of the lowest points of my life. I came to a point where I said, God, you know, I don't know how my life is going to turn out, but here in this moment, what I want more than anything else is I want to be right with you. I give you my life. It doesn't matter how my marriage turns out. It doesn't matter how anything else turns out. I want you. And it's in that moment that God came into that room and he changed my life forever. God wants to do that into your life. The Spirit cannot fill an already full life. You need to empty yourself of yourself by submitting to God and letting go of everything you've been holding on to. Everything that's standing in the way. Repent of any sin that's been holding you captive by confessing it and receiving prayer when we enter a time of ministry. And then and only then, when you've emptied yourself, when you've given your life over completely to God, will you be ready to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the strength to endure in the battle that the enemy brings into your life. Some of you, and I know this in my own life, I've lost the same battles over and over and over again because I was trying to fight my own strength. You've yet to be anointed with the power to fight. You need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Secondly, when Jesus was in the wilderness, he not only let his dependence be solely on God, but he let go of physical sustenance to be filled with spiritual power. He continued to draw near to God and trust his physical needs over to the care of God until his entire being was surrendered to the Lord. One decision in a church meeting, which is what he made, was not enough. He had to live this out. It says 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and prayed. It was a daily seeking of the presence of God, giving more and more of himself over to the Lord until he was completely surrendered. It's not enough just to make a decision in a church service. You have to let what begins in a meeting continue on in your everyday life saying, God, what you've done in me today, I desperately will seek you each and every day until I am completely yours and love you with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. As some of you here today, you've been filled with God's power, but you're still connected to the world. And you're still craving fulfillment in your work or as a parent or in material possessions and the things that the enemy is using to distract you. Maybe it's in your finances and in your paycheck. The gift that God has given you will not be cultivated and grow. It will not be able to help you win the battle and strengthen others because it's getting squandered in your pursuits. It's time to change what you crave. You need to submit yourself to God again. Satan wants us to doubt God's presence and his gifting in our lives. So we'll die wandering in the wilderness. He doesn't want you to grow in faith. But as you empty yourself, you can be filled up with God. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes as we go into our time of response and ministry. As the music begins to play. As we contemplate the word and what Jesus demonstrated for us. Today, church, I ask you, what are you hungry for? What are you hungry for? What have you been craving in your life? Have you been craving more of God, more of his presence? Or is it more of the world? Have you been craving the presence of God or the next installment of your favorite movie? If you want the power to fight and be victorious, you have to change what you crave. And today, 
you can begin by asking the Holy Spirit to reveal what's in your life that's in the way of being filled with the power and presence of God. Maybe it's just doubt and fear. Maybe you grew up in a religious tradition and you've got more questions than you do answers. And so it's hard for you to really access the faith to step out and seek the Lord. You can make the same decision Jesus did to say, you know what, God, I don't fully understand, but today I'm choosing to commit myself completely over to you. I surrender my doubt. I surrender my fears. I surrender my failures. I surrender the things that have been holding me back from taking a step of faith. But today, I'm giving myself over completely to you. We're in enemy territory. It's time to stop giving in to the enemy and stop start fighting on Satan's turf. We need to take the fight to him and do it the way Jesus did. 2 Corinthians 10 says we don't have the weapons of this world. Our weapons are not carnal. They're spiritual. They're powerful, able to bring down uh, strongholds. They have divine power. The weapons of our warfare are powerful that overcome the enemy. And until we detach from the world and begin attaching to God from being dependent on the world to being fully dependent on the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, we're not going to see the victory that we need in our lives. Jesus overcame the devil's attack by giving himself fully to the Lord and fasting and praying. If you're here today and the Spirit of God is speaking to you, you recognize that maybe you've been religious, but you have not yet surrendered your life fully to the Lord. In just a second, when we stand, I invite you to come forward. Lay yourself down here at the front and give yourself fully to Jesus. If you've not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you know you're lacking that in your life. Come forward. We'll pray that you receive the power and presence of God in your life. And we'll just unleash the presence of the Lord in this place. Maybe you're here today. And you've never, in your life, asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Maybe you went through some motions or activities when you were young, but there was never, ever really a decision where he said, today, I'm going all in with Jesus. When we stand, we begin to sing, I invite you to come forward and make the decision that will change your life forever. Give God your Lord. Father, I just pray in this place. Lord, as we embark on a 40-day fast together, starting today, Lord, I'm challenging the church to seek you on what's in their lives that they're depending on to give that up this week and through this series so that together we can seek your presence together asking you to show up in greater and more powerful ways that your healing power and miracle power would flow through your children God as we minister to one another and take this out into the city streets minister to those we come in contact with God that as we're seeking your presence together Lord I ask you right now that you begin working and touching people in their hearts. Reveal the areas in their lives that they need to surrender and give them the faith today to make a decision. And I pray, God, Holy Spirit, that you would begin even now doing the work. Fill who needs to be filled. Heal who needs to be healed. Touch who needs to be touched. Draw who needs to be drawn. And we give you glory and praise for everything. That